All right, uh, good morning, and uh, do just a brief word of uh, introduction before I read the passage and, and pray for us, but I just want to say thank you uh, for the invitation, thank you to Luke. I've gotten to know Luke a little bit through the Evangelical Christian Union, ECU, the last couple of years, and I was really glad that All Souls and CFC and just different uh, churches, organizations, that we could be kingdom partners together, that though we're in different churches, we're really, you know, one body of Christ uh, through the Universal Church, and so... Yeah, thankful really to be here, and I've really been praying for God's blessing in our time here uh, this morning. That you know, since Luke asked me to speak, I've been praying that God would uh, God would meet us this morning. So I'm trusting Him to do that. Well, the title of the message is uh, "Spiritual Power." They give an outline with you in in, uh, in your bulletin as well, and the passage is going to be from Matthew 17, uh, 14 to 23. And so, you know, myself, I've been preaching through Matthew at my, at my church. I'm actually preaching today at at our church as well. So. Um, so it's good to see that I think all, all the ages are here at our church. We do that every once in a while. But this Sunday is a joint worship service. So I tried to make the, the, the message a little bit kid-friendly too. So hopefully it can speak to, to all ages uh, today. So um, let me read our scripture and I'll pray for us. It's uh, from Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 to 23. This is, When they came to the crowd, a, a man came up to him, kneeling before him, and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. For he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. And the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Amen. Let's pray and let's depend on the Lord together. Uh, Father, we uh, come before you uh, this morning just asking you to be here with us, sending your Holy Spirit. Uh, upon us and uh, upon the preaching of your word, that we might hear your voice, that we might be convicted, and that we might be strengthened uh, to live for you, to live for your glory, to be people of spiritual power that can make an impact in this community, in this world, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I don't know if you're into uh, superhero movies, but um, if you look at the last decade or so, I don't know if this is a trend, but it seems that superheroes are really kind of a growing trend amongst movies and television shows. So anyone into the Avengers? Okay. Um, I'm kind of in the Avengers. And so I actually did a survey real quick to see what are the 10 most popular superheroes. The top three, I'll just do the top three right now. Were Iron Man was number three. Number two, anyone, any guesses? Spider-Man, okay. And number one was Batman, who's not even a superhero really, but I guess he was number one. Surprised Superman wasn't on there, but... Um, Anyway, you know, superheroes are, are pretty popular these days. And I was thinking about it, you know, why is it that people are so into superheroes, right? It's, it's, it's not real, right? It's like not possible. Um, and yet we're, we're, we're interested in them. We're entertained by them. Uh, or let me ask this question. You know, when you were a kid, maybe you still do this. I don't know if you do this. But like when you watched a superhero movie, what did you do? When I was a kid, I would, you know, after I watched Superman, I'd tie a towel around my neck. I'd pretend I was Superman. I go flying around and doing that. Or my my real childhood hero, I grew up in Chicago, was Michael Jordan. 
So I grew up around that time, and after, you know, after a game, I go to my, my hoop, I pretend I was on the Bulls, you know, hitting the game-winning shot, right? You can kind of relate. You know, why do we do that? And uh, there's probably maybe fleshly reasons why we do that, but there's probably spiritual reasons too. And C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity. He says, most people, if they really learn to look into their own hearts, would know that, know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. I think what C.S. Lewis picks up on is that our hearts are wired uh, to transcend our natural and human existence. You know, that, that we, we love superheroes because they point us towards the superhero, towards Christ. And they point us towards the, the type of Christ-like superheroes that our hearts long to become and that Christ wants us to become as well, too. And I think that's kind of what we are going to see in this passage, is that we're going to see a call in this passage to look at our superhero, Jesus, but also that he's going to call us to, for ourselves to grow with spiritual power into a person that looks like the superhero, Jesus Christ, and so that we can join him in the mission of rescuing a lost and dying world. And so I think the main question that I'd want to land on us this morning as we hear his word is, you know, as you think of your mission from the Lord, you know, how spiritually powerful and effective are you uh, in your mission field? And maybe some of us as we're here uh, this morning, maybe you feel a little discouraged. Possibly maybe you had some time with family with Thanksgiving. I, I hope and pray it was a good time. But maybe I know that I feel this way sometimes with unbelieving family members that I feel inadequate. I feel sometimes hopeless when I see their spiritual state. Uh, maybe you've been ministering to coworkers or to friends, and maybe you feel like you're falling short. Well, I pray that you know as we look into the Word, that we be encouraged uh, that by God's grace, that we can become spiritually effective. Uh, we can become spiritual superheroes, so to speak. That God would want, so that He would be glorified, that people could be rescued. So, we'll answer three questions then from the text about spiritual power. I took away a little phrase from the text to kind of help answer the questions. So, three questions are: Why do we need spiritual power? And says he suffers terribly. We'll see that in verse 14 to 16. What is the key to spiritual power? It's if you have faith, verse 17 to 20. And lastly, what are the effects of spiritual power? It's that this mountain will move, verse 20 to 23. All right, so why do we need spiritual power? It says he suffers terribly. The setting is that right before this story, uh, Jesus is transfigured. And uh, he's with Peter, James, and John on the mountain, and, and they're there to witness it. And then they come down the mountain, and what they, they meet is they meet the crowds, they meet the other nine disciples, and they specifically meet this man who has a sick son. And he says this to, to Jesus in verse 15. He says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures, and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. So physically what happens in seizures is that the brain's electrical activity becomes abnormal, uh, the brain starts to lose its control. The person loses control of their brain and even their bodily functions. What we, what we find out is actually it's a demon that's influencing these seizures. And other gospel accounts actually tell us that the demon is using these seizures to try and kill this boy by having him fall into the fire or into the water. And now as we look in Scripture, you know, many of the physical illnesses in the Bible, such as blindness or deafness or paralysis or, or seizures in this case, they're used to picture spiritual realities. So the spiritual reality being sh shown here is that, uh, through the seizures, is that you know, when we're apart from Christ, 
Our minds, our, our hearts, our bodies are, are helplessly seized as prisoners of sin. Now, we don't have an ability to free ourselves from it either. And Satan is involved. He's harassing us with temptations to bring us deeper into this imprisonment. And all so that we'd be eventually led into this eternal death apart from Christ. And so uh, it's a fitting description that, that the, the, the father says he suffers terribly. It's a fitting description of the boy, but it's an even more fitting description of sinful humanity that's seized by sin. And so it's this, in this desperate and painful condition, you know, the father comes to the nine disciples of Jesus. And, and he has hope that these disciples that are with Jesus, they'd be able to help. Right? And so in verse 16, though, this is what it, what it says, I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. You know, sadly, the people that were supposed to have power to help had no power to help. You know, I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about myself and the condition of this boy. I was thinking of myself in high school. I, I, I grew up in a Christian home, but my, my junior year of high school, I was in a place where I was really far from God. I was in rebellion against Christ. I remember I went to a retreat. Uh, actually, my mom forced me to go to this retreat, but I went to this retreat. But at the retreat, I heard a, the, the word, and I was convicted that I needed to give my life to Christ. And so this was in, a, in January of my junior year. And so I, I had some things I had to turn away from. The problem was that after that retreat, about a week later, I went back, and I turned back to my life without Christ. And a month or so later, I was convicted again. Uh, I tried to change, and I failed. I tried again, and I failed. This kept happening until eight months later is August. So January is the first time August, about eight months later, I was at another retreat. I remember this distinct moment came where I was convicted again that I needed to change. But this is my prayer this time. It says, God, I've tried so hard to change and I can't change myself. God, you have to change me. You know, have any of us been there? And maybe, maybe we're there right now. Uh, we feel so seized by the power of sin, unable to be set free. Or maybe we have people that we're ministering to, people that we love, uh, that no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you try to minister to them, it feels that it's, it's helpless. It's power, you feel powerless. You feel discouraged. Uh, you know, in those cases, you know, we should never obviously excuse sin. But I do think that there's an encouragement if maybe we do feel like that. We feel powerless in our own walk or powerless in our ministry. I think it means this is that we are seeing spiritual reality correctly. Uh, and it's that those that come to Christ most helpless that are the ones that are most able to receive His help. Uh, you know, at, at our church at CFC, what we do during communion many times is we, uh, as we as we share about coming to the table, we say this many times is that you know many times people come and and they feel so sinful, so feel so unable to approach the table. What we say many times is that you know it's the ones that know that you're sinful that know that you're not worthy to come to this table, you're actually maybe the, the ones that are most prepared to come. Those are the ones that know their, their sin, that know their need for grace, uh, that are most able to be helped by Christ. Uh, and so, so maybe if we feel that way, we're, we're in a good position uh, to be helped by the Lord. So uh, we can see, hopefully, the, the answer to this question, why do we need spiritual power? It's because we and this world is suffering terribly under the power of sin. And we have no ability to get out, no, no power to escape. And so we need someone who has supernatural spiritual power to set us free. And again, the disciples, the nine disciples were supposed to have it, but they lacked it. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he teaches them, how do you have the spiritual power? And so that's the second question is, what is the key to spiritual power? And the key phrase here is, is if you have faith. 
verse 17 to 20. So let's look at what happens in the, the next part of the passage. You know, first, Jesus rebukes the, the crowd and the disciples for their lack of faith, and he asks the boy to be brought to him. So verse 17 says, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus, again, he immediately and powerfully heals this boy in verse 18. It says that he rebuked the demon. It came out of him. The boy was healed instantly. Okay, but Jesus, he doesn't, he's not just satisfied with himself just healing the boy, but he wants to train his disciples to have this power too and this effectiveness. So he, he instructs them. And the disciples come to him. Verse 19, the disciples came to Jesus privately. They said, why could we not cast it out? And in verse 20, and he said to them, because of your little faith, for if, if, truly, if I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So we see, as we look at these verses here, that the key to having spiritual power, according to Jesus, is faith. Because we see that he calls them faithless generation. And he says to the disciples, your little faith. And, and that's the root cause for your, your powerlessness. And he says that faith is the cause for having power. Because he says, if you have faith, mountains will move. And again, mountains moving, that's a, that's a hyperbole to communicate that through faith, God will empower us to do things, to experience things that are impossible for us to do without the power of God. And so I want to dive a little bit deeper, do kind of a deeper dive into understanding biblical faith. So two things we'll look at is the definition of faith and then uh, the process of biblical faith. So a definition of faith, I, I just pulled a, de a dictionary definition. I thought it was, it was a good definition. This is a complete trust or confidence in someone or something. Complete trust or confidence in someone or something. And I think that's a good start to understand biblical faith. Because faith is first and foremost, we have to say that it's trusting. Right? And I think that's illuminating because it shows faith's connection to power. It reminds us that by nature we are powerless people. So the disciples were not failures because they lacked some inherent power that they were supposed to have. That's not the point. But spiritual power comes as we put our faith, our trust in God who has all the power. And I think that ex explains why Jesus says that you know, if we have faith like a grain of mustard seed, that we can move mountains. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but, you know, when I grew up kind of listening to this passage or hearing this passage, I was always discouraged. I was like, goodness, I don't even have a mustard seed of faith. You know, I'm like, I'm awful. I don't even have that. You know, I feel terrible. Now, I do think that there is a rebuke from Jesus in this, but I do think that the emphasis of this illustration is not so much to be discouraged by the smallness of faith, but to be encouraged that mustard seed people have a great God who moves mountains. And that's the point of, of this illustration, is the greatness of God. And it, would you just trust Him? Uh, if I could give this illustration, do you guys know what remoras are? They're, they're these small fish that live in the ocean. And what they do is they attach themselves to bigger fish, like sharks or whales. And so basically these, these little fish, these remoras, they, they attach onto these big whales... And so they move much faster through the ocean, and they receive protection. And I was reading an article about them, and this is a, there's a funny line in there that I thought was interesting. It says, you know, why the whales tolerate the remoras, the irritation, and the potential drag is still an unanswered question. I was like, I was like wow, this is like what our faith relationship with God is like, right? We are useless, small, powerless remoras. Attaching ourselves to the big blue, giant blue whale of God. That we give him no benefit. 
and yet we receive all of his benefits. I think it's important to get because, you know, we talked about superheroes, right, in the beginning, and I think there's a danger in Christian life that when we think about the idea that we have, we're called to have spiritual power, there's a danger that, you know, I'm supposed to be great. I need to be strong. I need to be powerful. But the, the paradox of Christian life is this. It's the ones that know that they're the weakest that are actually the strongest. It's the ones that have learned the secret of remora living. That Christian life is learned to need to you need to learn to live in the strength of God is, is how we're strengthened. If we could remember this, I think it, it changes the way that we conceive of Christian living. And so often we think of Christian living as, as me being strong or me being faithful and, and even doing good things, right? I need to read the Bible, I need to pray, I need to go to church, and we think of those as works or sacrifices that we offer to God to appease Him. <laughs> You know, God, here's my Bible reading, here's my prayer, here's my, here's my attendance, here's my faithfulness. But, you know, all those things are actually acts of reliant faith of weak people. Right? Bible reading, what is that? What it's saying is, 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 is saying to God, God, I'm hungry, I'm broke, I'm a beggar, but your word is the, is the bread line. And I'm coming like a beggar to your word. You know, prayer, it, it, it can sound like a work, oh, it's, it's work to pray, but... But prayer, in the perspective of faith, it's, it's coming and saying, it's not just prayer, it's receiving and saying, God, I'm coming, I'm broken, I'm empty, I have nothing, God, I come to receive from you. And that's what prayer is. And, and it, it, sometimes maybe we need to change our language uh, because we've, we've so embedded it with wrong ideas and that, that, that the Christian life is a life of reliance through and through, from beginning to end. And so... Uh, faith is for, foremost a trusting and relying, but I want to break down the definition of faith a little bit deeper, I guess, to see the process of biblical faith. There are some kind of concrete steps for us to rely on God by faith and receive His power. And theologians have sometimes broken into these categories of knowledge, agreement, trust, and then I'll talk about love as well. So I talked about remoras as one illustration. I'm going to use another illustration. I'm talking about vacuum cleaners, if that's okay. To illustrate the process of receiving power uh, uh, as we have faith in God. Okay, so the first step is this step of knowledge. Okay, so imagine I have a vacuum cleaner here, right, and it needs power, right, to, 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 to operate. And so, uh, you know, I've got to know that there's a socket, right, that that, that that socket provides power when I plug into it. In the same way, basic knowledge of God, of truth, which is found in this Word of God in Scripture, is the basic starting point for us to begin to have faith. We need, we need knowledge. But second, we need agreement. So I might know that there's a socket that gives power, but to be, I have to believe it's true, right? I have to agree that that's true. Uh, you know, if I doubt or disagree, I'm like, no, there's no power in that socket. You're crazy. You know, I would never plug into the socket. In the same way that as we read the Scripture, as we read the Bible, we need to see truth about God, but we need to agree to all it says, and you say, yes, I agree about all it says about Christ and sin and the gospel. We believe it's true. So the second step is agreement. But the third step is that I need trust. All right, it's not enough for me to say, okay, I totally believe the socket gives power. Amen. And then I just kind of walk away from the socket. And I don't plug it into the wall. I don't have power until I act on what I believe. And I plug it into the socket and receive power in the same way. Biblical faith does not just agree with truth, but it trusts in truth. It actively takes steps to plug into the truth of the gospel. 
but I want to bring up one more point, which I think sometimes is left out of the definition of, I think, biblical faith, which is, which is love. Now imagine this. Now imagine I plug in my vacuum cleaner, and, and the purpose of it is I'm supposed to use it to clean up my carpet, right? Uh, and that's the right way to use it. But let's say that I, I get all this power in my vacuum cleaner, and, and I'm also, like, angry at my kids, okay, one day. I'm angry at them. I'm like, I'm going to use this vacuum cleaner to, like, suck your heads off. Uh, like, I, I don't do that, but... Um, but that's messed up, right? That's messed up. That's wrong. It's wrong to use the vacuum's power that way. And in the same way, the Bible says it's not enough to trust God for power, but we have to have the right motive of using His power. You know, God gives us power, His forgiveness, His grace, so that we can love Him and love people. Uh, not as a uh, get out of get out of hell kind of free kind of card, or I uh, get a, a scotch free life to live however I want to live. You know, if we, try, if we try to plug into God's grace and we use His power selfishly, you know, God won't send the electricity of His power into that socket if He discerns that within our hearts. And that's what uh, 1 Corinthians 13.2 is saying. You know, Paul says, if I, have faith, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, uh, I am nothing. And Paul's actually referring back to the, the, this, this, these words of Jesus. He's giving more clarity about the nature of faith by saying that, you know, you can know that you need God's power. You can even rely on God for that power. But if you don't love God, if you don't love his glory, you're nothing. It's not a real and biblical faith until there's the right motive of love in our hearts. So we must learn in the midst of our faith life to have a repentance, cleansing our hearts of the ways that we want to use God and use his power to glorify ourselves and to glorify him. And so... Hopefully that's helpful because, I don't know about you, but I think, you know, I'm just like the disciples. So often I lack power in my Christian life. And, and we see it's due to the lack of faith that we have. And, and yet it's many times, it's different aspects, though, right? Different aspects of the process of faith. I mean, I don't know everyone in this room, but some of us maybe are different places in the process of faith that we struggle. Some of us are struggles, the first two things, about the knowledge and agreement aspect which are kind of more mind reasons. Many, maybe some of us have doubts about God. Um, and, and I think the application in that case is that you just need to get to know God better. And, you know, there's, there's no shortcuts to that. You know, we can't just kind of like sleep on your Bible and just kind of learn by osmosis or something, right? You've you got to take time. You've got you to gotta open the Scripture. You've got to read. You've got to spend time with mature believers that can speak into your life. It takes effort and obviously the work of the Holy Spirit. But in time... If you're in that place, you know, faith will arise in your heart. Uh, so grow in faith in that way. But some of us lack power because of the, more the third and fourth reasons of trust and love. Uh, you know, we, we know all that we're, you know, we have all the knowledge about God, but our obedience of faith is lacking. You know, meaning that, you know, the, the Word of God says that reading the Word of God feeds me spiritually. Faith says that I will read the Word of God. You know, the Word of God says that praying is the way to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Faith says then I will actually pray and not neglect prayer in my life. We've got to act in trust uh, as we, uh, in our faith life. And so we've seen that, the, the key, that faith is the key to spiritual power. Um, and so if we lack power, then we have to examine where is a shortfall in my faith and, and, and make adjustments but as we grow in faith, what we see is that we, we do have power. That's the promise of this passage. And so I want to look lastly at the third question. Was then, if we receive power, what are the effects of this power? And it said, this, this mountain will move. So verse 20 said, um, 
If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Again, this verse is showing that, that faith is the key that will release God's power to move mountains. But we should ask this question of, you know, what mountain is God trying to move in our, in our lives? And if you think of Christian life, there's actually, I think, a lot of different types of mountains that need moving. Uh, and so what we need is we actually need specific faith to release specific power to move specific mountains in our Christian life. And so I want to talk about kind of generally two types of power that God gives to move spiritual mountains. It's His justifying power, which we need initially and ongoing in our Christian life. And then His sanctifying power, which comes to us personally and then for our ministry to other people. So we'll look at that. So we need His justifying power. Uh, justification power is... It's to move the mountain of the barrier of the condemnation and the guilt of our sin uh, that separates us from God. You know, if you think of this passage, actually, you know, the disciples were probably embarrassed and ashamed and they felt guilty for the way that they were unable to be effective in their ministry, uh, the way that they should have been. Uh, but interestingly, right after Jesus rebukes them, he talks about his impending death and resurrection. In verse 22, he says, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. So the end of this passage actually points us to the gospel. And the gospel reminds us that the disciples were sinners. These, and these disciples deserve God's wrath, and they deserved hell. And yet through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the mountain of their sin and their guilt was removed, and the mountain of Christ's perfect righteousness was given to them in their, in their place. And what this meant is that though the disciples failed in this passage, that as they looked to Christ, they would remember Jesus' justifying power, which meant that they didn't have to be weighed down by a mountain of guilt and shame because they were forgiven and loved and justified in Jesus Christ. They were called righteous. And I believe the disciples, you could see it almost in this passage, to some degree they understood this truth of justification because I love what it says in verse 19 about the disciples, what they did after their failure. Verse 19, it says, Then the disciples came to Jesus. You know, don't you love that? You know, what do you do when you fail? You know, our tendency, you know, just like Adam and Eve, is that when we fail, we run, we hide. Uh, but the disciples, in their failure, they, they ran to Christ. Uh, they, they ran to Him for grace, for help, for forgiveness, for strength. And I think it's because they knew that they were loved. Um, you know, some of us, maybe in this room, we need to experience this for the first time. There's a mountain of guilt and shame and condemnation in your life. And what the gospel says is that, 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 that shame, that guilt, that condemnation, that separation you have between you and God can be removed as you trust in Him. But for some of us that, that have been believers, you know, we need to be reminded of this again and again and again and again. Uh, that we can know that we can start over again and again and again without shame or condemnation because of the gospel. So, we receive His justifying power, but we don't stop there, but we got to go all the way to His sanctifying power, which strengthens us uh, personally and for ministry. Um, you know, sanctifying power is, is, is the power to move the mountain of our own inability to grow and change spiritually. It moves the mountain of our powerlessness to help others in ministry as well. And I think we kind of see the pathway to this sanctification power uh, in this passage. And as you look at verse 19, it says that the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, and it's a picture of prayer, that they spoke to Jesus. And then uh, Jesus spoke to them in verse 20. He says that he said to them, 
and a picture of the Word of God. I think we see in this passage implicitly that two major means of God's grace and power come to us, the means of prayer and the Word. Uh, And through those means, as Jesus speaks to them, as the disciples ask Him for help, I think Jesus, through this instruction, is going to fill His disciples with the sanctifying power that's going to enable them to grow and to be empowered in their ministry. We may not see it now in this moment, but uh, as the word is planted in their hearts as they relate to Jesus through prayer, uh, it's, it's a time bond that's going to explode and they're going to grow spiritually. This is what the word of prayer is like in our lives. You know, they work together to destroy the mountains of sin. They create this explosive volcano of new desires, of love for God and power to minister to other people. And so we see that that's the means that God gives us. Now, I want to answer kind of two kind of theological questions that kind of come up in this, this passage about ministry empowerment that I think we should answer, otherwise it's easy to get either confused or discouraged. I think our first question is, uh, does this passage teach that any time we pray for physical healing, that, that if it doesn't happen, that it means that we lack faith? Right? It almost seems that way as you look at this passage, but I think the answer to that is this. Is we have to look at the whole storyline of the Bible. The Bible emphasizes that, you know, that, that our faith for ministry empowerment should be mostly for the power to do spiritual work, spiritual healing more than merely physical healing. And the reason that I think in the scripture you see more physical healings is that uh, there was not the full revelation of the written word of God given yet. So physical healings in the Bible were almost like a picture book, you know, almost a picture book to describe spiritual truths. But now we have the full book, right? We have the full book. Uh, we don't need physical healings as often to communicate spiritual truth because we have the full revelation of the Word of God. Yet, of course, God still does work in miraculous, amazing ways, and we can still pray for physical healing. Uh, but ultimately, we, we pray. As we pray for people physically, we pray ultimately that they would understand the spiritual truth behind those physical healings that God can do. And we trust that even if the physical healing does not come, that people will be led to the spiritual healing that they most desperately need. So I think that's one question that we got to answer. I think the second question is this. Is, does this passage teach that if I pray uh, for spiritual things like a person's salvation or my ministry, my workplace, or my family, or a revival of a, of, a, of a people group, does it mean that, that, that if that doesn't happen immediately or if it doesn't happen at all, does it mean that I lacked faith? And um, I think one thing is that I think this passage does challenge us that you know, I think in our lives that we should really examine and ask ourselves, do I, do I have spiritual power in my Christian life? You know, I kind of like to describe it like this, that, you know, are we on, right? Like, are you spiritually on at any time, at any moment in your, in your life? That you're, you're so filled with God's Holy Spirit uh, that people, when, they, when they're around you, they sense God's presence. Uh, they're, they're ushered into the presence of God through our lives. Whether it's the words that you say, the service that you give, the counseling that you do across the table, the singing that you do, the, the, the teaching of the Word of God that you might share, that there should be an immediate and, and a consistent impact, I think, in our Christian lives. And we should yearn for that and long for that as we, as we minister, that, that, that as, as people around us, it's almost like there's, there's spiritual fruit, like Psalm 1, there's fruit hanging off the tree of our life, and people when they're around us, they can just eat. And they feel fed. They feel fed spiritually. And I think that, that part of what this passage challenges us to do is, is, are we those sorts of people? That people feel fed around us? 
But in the midst of that, I, I do want to say that I think at the same time, it doesn't mean that there are perfect and always instant results in ministry. Um, Jesus, and you see that in this passage itself, Jesus freed the epileptic boy immediately, but his own disciples, who were his ministry, were not, were, were slow to understand, right? Uh, and even if you think of Jesus' ministry to the 12 disciples, one of them, Judas, betrayed him and fell away at the end of his ministry. And so from that perspective, Jesus, even in his perfect humanity, had a ministry disappointment. And so if Jesus faced that in his life, then we should, face, we, will, we should expect to face that. That even if we are perfectly faithful, we will face disappointments in ministry. And yet, in the midst of that, Jesus faithfully ministered to his other 11 disciples. That, that though they were slow to understand, he was patient with them. He prayed for them. He loved them. He waited for their growth and their transformation. And we see the breakthrough happen after his death and resurrection. In the book of Acts, we see that these disciples that lacked spiritual power in this passage, at Pentecost, they were filled with spiritual power. And they, were, and they, they turned the first century world upside down. And these were the once failed disciples of Jesus. I think the lesson for us is that, you know, you know fruit in even Jesus' ministry didn't happen right away. You know, God moves mountains. Some mountains, he moves slower than others. And yet it took sacrifice and death and perseverance and patience. And eventually the mountain moved and the fruit came. Um, I'll share about uh, myself. I'm involved in a, you know, at CFC in a, a particular ministry I'm a part of is called Indian Christian Fellowship, ICF. And uh, I've been ministering in this context for about 12 years now. And by God's grace, uh, God's been really faithful to bring you know, several Indian people to come to know Christ over these years. Uh, but what I try to do regularly with the people in the ministry is uh, I try to remind them of the history of our ministry and how it birthed it, actually. So the ministry officially began around the year 2000, so it's been around almost 18 years or so uh, on this campus. So several years even before I, I, I came. Uh, and so at that time, amongst Indians, you know, there were very, very few believers. Uh, if you know statistics about Indian people, the you know, majority are Hindu and Muslim. And then there's a, there's a small population of Indian Christians. I grew up in an Indian Christian home. But even amongst Indian Christians, it's very nominal. Um, you know, uh, so many of us, you know, didn't know Christ, and we didn't even know there was a gospel to believe. Um, and that was the, that was a spiritual condition in, in probably around the 1990s. But there were some Indian ladies that were at our church at CFC who had come to know Christ, and uh, they had a heart to see revival amongst Indian people on this campus. And so there's a story that one night these ladies were praying in their apartment and praying for revival. And in the apartment actually across the street, there was this Indian like major drinking party going on like across the street. And they're praying, you know, God, would you do something? What's interesting is that in due time, several of those party people started to come to Christ. And one of them that was actually kind of throwing the party uh, came to Christ. And one of the girls I was praying, they got married actually. And they ended up going to ministry. Those powerful prayers right there. But, um, you know, and that's, that's, the legacy of this ministry. And I share that story every year to ICF to remind them of our heritage, to remind them of our spiritual mothers. You know, that they were few, but they prayed. They were, they were few, maybe unnoticed, but they were powerful. And God heard those prayers. And what seemed like an immovable mountain, uh, the Indian community started to move. And my, my plea to them is that we would be faithful. We would continue this legacy and this heritage that we would see more and more mountains move amongst the Indian community. And I pray that we would desire the same here. I love this verse from Galatians 6, 9. It says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, 
For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. If you're praying for the salvation of your family or your friends or some sort of breakthrough, uh, you'll never give up hope, never stop praying. Um, you know, Because just like Jesus with his disciples, just like these Indian ladies praying for revival, at the proper time you'll reap a harvest. At the proper time the mountain will move if you don't give up. Um, you know, as we close, I wanted to end kind of with one final thought. I was thinking about, you know, I think there's a major challenge here that we are to be like Jesus, to be powerful like him. But I want to end by remembering who Jesus is to us. You know, when I looked at this passage, I don't know about you again, when I, when I read a passage like this, I get discouraged. You know, I think of my weaknesses. I think of my failures. And uh, even when I look at, you know, verse 17, Jesus, look at Jesus' words here. He says in verse 17, he says, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And Jesus has this righteous anger. He's frustrated because he wants the best for his disciples. He wants the best for us. And he looks at us. He says, how long am I supposed to deal with you? And it almost feels like he's saying, like, I'm tired of you. I'm tired of your failures. But, you know, we have to see the, the whole of Scripture and really the whole of Matthew. And I think the, the deeper heart of Christ is found in Matthew 28, 20, where at the end, after his death and resurrection, before his ascension, he says this to the disciples, says, but behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. You know, Psalm 30, verse 5 says, God's anger lasts for a moment, but his favor lasts for a lifetime. In Matthew 17, 17, is Christ's anger for a moment, but the very end of Matthew is his favor for a lifetime. We may fail, we may fall short, but Christ promises to be with us. He promises to be faithful to us. He promises to love us always to the very end of the age. And in that strength, in that grace, in that power, we don't need to be discouraged. We don't need to be defeated. We can get up. We can keep going. In that strength, he can use mustard seed people like us to move mountains for his glory. Amen. Let's pray. And I'll close some prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for uh, this time. We thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this church. Uh, thank you for all the you know, little mustard seeds that are here. We're so weak. Uh, we're, we're, we're inadequate. We fall short. Uh, but you're a mountain-moving God. And you take weak people, uh, and you display your mighty power through us. And so, Lord, I pray that you bless this church. You'd fill this church with your Holy Spirit. Fill them with faith and trust in you, dependence on you, so that all the many mountains that are in this room, all the many discouragements that people might feel, uh, that you would encourage them, you would strengthen them with your power, uh, so that they'd keep going. There'd be some breakthroughs this week. Uh, and, and if not this week, that you'd give strength to keep going uh, so that one day the mountain will move. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.